Hello and welcome to the Energy Strong podcast presented by SPL. I'm Patrick Shower, joined once again by the CEO of Artemis Energy, Kat Galloway. Kat, how are you doing? Doing great today. Happy to be on the show. You know, we talk a lot about emissions reductions and technology and what's driving um, oil and gas from an innovation standpoint. I think today we're probably going to have a pretty good talk about policy and how the exploration side of the house can influence what's going on on a national level from a policy perspective. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's going to be a really interesting talk and looking forward to, to hearing what our guest has to say. We are talking with Anne Bradbury. She is the CEO of the American Exploration and Production Council. She has a lot of experience in Washington and a lot, a lot of experience talking about energy policy from a national level. But before that, also joining us is the director of ESG from SPL, Andrew Parker. Andrew, how are you doing? Good, Pat. Just to piggyback off what Kat said, too, I mean, Anne has a tremendous amount of experience on Capitol Hill. She served with Paul Ryan. She served with John Boehner. And I'm just really interested, given the current events of 2021 and beyond, towards energy policy making, what the real attitude is like towards the industry in Washington. So I can't wait to get to talk to her about it. Yeah, she's really connected into that world, and it's going to be good to hear what she has to say. So I think we're going to have a great talk today, and I think Anne has a lot of good information to share with us about where things are headed right now and what she thinks that we can do better as an industry. We will be right back to the Energy Strong podcast, but I want to tell you about our sponsor, SPL. They offer end-to-end testing, measurement, and reporting solutions across the entire hydrocarbon value chain through cutting-edge technology, meticulous processes, and highly qualified personnel. SPL offers insights you can trust and act on. Check them out online at spl-inc.com. That's spl-inc.com. And now... Back to the show. So our guest today is Anne Bradbury. Anne has a bachelor's in political science from the University of Richmond. Uh, She has extensive experience on Capitol Hill, where she's served as a top uh, leadership aide for over 10 years, including serving as the floor director for two consecutive speakers of the House of Representatives, Paul Ryan and John Boehner. She currently serves as the CEO of the American Exploration and Production Council. Anne, thanks for joining. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here today. So maybe for listeners who aren't familiar with with you, uh, maybe expand on that bio a little bit, share a little bit more about uh, your background and how you came to be in your role uh, today. Sure, I'd be happy to. Uh, So as you noted, uh, my background is largely on Capitol Hill. I worked for two different speakers of the house and I was the floor director. And, uh, you know, the floor director is sort of a a very esoteric term for people that probably, you know, don't live inside the bubble of Washington, D.C. But in that role, um, I was responsible for pulling together the vote coalitions for passing the major priorities of um, the speaker and Republican leadership at the time uh, for sort of the operational and procedural details of the floor um, and also for interfacing with the parliamentarian's office. So kind of being that bridge between the institutional side of the House and the political side of the House. 
Um, so I got to work not just with the speakers and the leadership, but really every member of Congress um, on the House side who uh, who came through. And it was it was really interesting um, and exciting job uh, that I did for many years. Um, and um, you know, but eventually kind of burned out on that. It's 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 fairly taxing both emotionally and physically. Um, and so when I was looking to leave the private sector, I did I did some um, multi sector consulting for a while, um, and then. Uh, the opportunity to come to this trade association was presented, and I've always I've always really loved energy issues. You know, the benefit of being the floor director on the Hill is you get to dabble in a little bit of all of the issues and see a little bit of everything, kind of from a ten thousand foot level. Um, and uh, and I also actually have um, some ties up in Northeast Pennsylvania, and so I was able to sort of see firsthand really the the shale revolution up there. And so sort of the combination of my my policy experience up there, and you know what I saw in terms of what um, you know the shale industry did for um, some really rural communities up in Northeast Pennsylvania. Um, you know, I, I really had a, a very, um, you know, special place in my heart for um, onshore energy companies. And so it was, it was kind of a really, really nice fit. Um, and um, I've been here now for, for two years. And so AXPC represents um, about 25 of the largest upstream oil and gas companies. And so, you know, we like to say that this is the industry that brought the United States from a place of energy dependence to energy abundance and everything that that's done for our country. Um, and, you know, we've done that while we've, you know, kept prices low for consumers and we've dropped emissions faster than anywhere um, in the world. And so um, I think it's a great legacy. I think it's a great story that, you know, needs to be um, told here in Washington. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm proud to be a part of it. One of the goals of this podcast is, and Energy Strong in general, is educate and advocate, right, for the industry. And our we want to target people that work in oil and gas, but we want to target people outside of oil and gas too, right, and kind of provide an educational forum that they can listen to and, and inform themselves on topics like energy policy, right? And maybe real briefly, spend a few minutes kind of talking about why American oil and gas production is so important to our national security, to our economy, like what role, like really define the role that it plays for the average American. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it's, it's hard, it's hard to cover that in three minutes, right? Cause you, right. you could write a book on that, but you know, I think, um, you know, going back, um, you know, to, you know, Jimmy Carter era when, you know, there was, you know, rationing of gasoline and, and real true energy shortages because of our, um, you know, overwhelming dependence on foreign sources of oil and gas and how vulnerable that made us financially and from a security perspective. And, you know, I think, you know, you look at that and then you look, you know, to the to the 90s and early 2000s even. And, you know, we were fighting wars in large part over our ability to access Middle Eastern oil. Um, and, you know, this is um, you know, you know, that, um, again, you know, has a huge, takes a huge toll on a, on a country. And so really going back to, to Jimmy Carter, every, every American president, both Democrat and Republican has really talked about the importance of greater energy security for the United States so that we are not dependent on foreign nations that don't necessarily have our best interest at heart when it comes to the needed, the you know, the necessary energy to power our daily lives, to power our economy. 
Um, so, so that's, you know, the national security aspect, you know, there's also certainly, um, an important cost aspect as well. Um, and, you know, we were just looking at this internally, but, um, you know, if you look at, you know, for example, um, what natural gas prices looked like pre shale revolution, um, they were, you know, often twice as high as they, you know, two to three times as high as they were as they are today. Um, you know, and, and today they're higher than they have been over the last few years. And, you know, that's 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 hard for a lot of people. But pre-shale revolution, they were much higher than they were today. Um, and they were much more volatile than they were today. Because, again, you were dependent on foreign nations um, and, you know, their their ability and willingness to provide the United States with um, with energy. And so, um, you know, if you if you just look at energy costs over the last decade, um, you know, energy costs for American families have actually gone down by around 10 to 15 percent over the last decade. And that is due directly to the abundant oil and natural gas that we've been able to produce here. Um, and, you know, think about what other costs have looked like over the last decade, you know, the cost of private education, the cost of, you know, health care, you know, that's all skyrocketed. But energy costs have really stayed low and that, you know, that's so important for um, every American family. Um, but it's also important for, you know, our overall economy. We've been able to bring manufacturing back to the United States because our ability to power these large manufacturing plants are so, you know, people know that they can count on this low cost, reliable sources of energy that we've been able to unlock here. That's maybe like one of my favorite answers we've gotten uh, because I, I feel like we pigeonhole ourselves right into like the, Hey, we heat your homes. We fuel your cars, you know, like the, the traditional, um, the traditional talking points, but you forget like how spoiled are we truly? Like we're, we're mad that, you know, gas is higher than it was last year or three years ago, but think back even further to the price of gas then and the quality of life that we've been able to enjoy because of the industry. And the point on wars, I think, is also one that I've never really considered, right? Like we don't have to worry so much about where our oil comes from if we can produce it domestically. So that's a great answer. Well, I, th I think, Andrew, right now, it it's more like there's an, an internal war going on, right? So we've got the the administration, one day they're begging for more oil to be released. The next day, they're releasing oil from our strategic reserve, right? And then, and then it's against fossil fuels. And it just seems like there's just so much conflict internally going on. Um, I'm not on the Hill. I don't know how that feels every day. I'm just looking at it from, from my desk here in Austin, Texas. Um, and tell us about, from, from your experience in Washington, how does it feel out there right now? Is it really polarized? Kind of explain to us how it feels. It does feel very polarized. And I, I think the term you used is, you know, the, there's, it feels like a lot of these policies are in conflict. And, and I think that's exactly right. And, you know, unfortunately, you know, when you, when, you know, there's not a coherent strategy around energy and climate change, you know, what you see is a lot of, you know, going, going down a lot of different policy holes or policy rabbit holes that are in direct conflict with each other. I mean, clearly, um, you know, releasing oil from the SPR, clearly asking OPEC 
to produce more oil recognizes that supply is important and that we need a stable supply of oil to power this country. But unfortunately, there's also policies at the same time and, and rhetoric, frankly, that is discouraging made in America production and, you know, all of the benefits that come with that. So, um, you know, what, you know, the way I think about it is, you know, you know, climate is clearly a huge priority of this administration and to, you know, both, frankly, both Democrats and many Republicans on the Hill as well. Um, but in order to actually tackle climate change, you have to start by being realistic about what energy demand and people's energy needs are both domestically and globally, because this, if, if you're not serious about that, you know, what we're seeing is when, you know, due to policies um, that have tried to depress oil and natural gas production, you know, what you see is, is switching back to coal, right? And so it's, 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 it's not, it's, there's not a coherent strategy that is aligned with what people's energy demand and energy needs actually looks like. So, Anne, what is some of that messaging that kind of brings that middle ground together where we can address people's real climate and environmental concerns while still being realistic about energy demands? Is what, what, is, what is AXPC doing to help try and bring forward some more, like you said, more rational conversations on that front? So, you know, what we what we try to do and, you know, I appreciate because because you all clearly try to do this on this podcast as well. So I feel like we're really aligned here is we really try to, you know, have a very fact based conversation about, um, you know, the the critical role that oil and natural gas currently play in our economy, in the world's energy mix and the role that it will continue to play for the foreseeable future. And so even under the IEA's sustainable development scenario, which models different countries' Paris commitments, the world will continue to rely almost 50% on oil and natural gas uh, for its energy mix um, into, you know, for decades to come. Um, so, so oil and natural gas is not going anywhere, even under you know, the so-called Paris scenarios. Um, and I think that's really important to remember. So then the question is, where do you want it to come from? Who do you want to produce it? And how do we produce it under the highest standards of anywhere in the world? So, you know, the other thing we talk about is, you know, American oil and natural gas is so, you know, is, is, is produced under the highest standards of anywhere in the world. And so as the world continues to consume this product, you know, and again, and will for decades to come, um, you know, let's let's make sure that we, you know, that we're producing it here, that we're supporting these jobs and that we're supporting low energy prices for Americans here at home. You know, and, and Patrick, I think, you know, the other the other part of this is, as you all know, you know, energy is a global commodity and, you know, the world is really connected when it comes to energy in, in many ways. Um, and, you know, there are still 2 billion people in the world that don't have access to reliable electricity. And, you know, when when people have to choose and, and you can you can make a judgment call as to whether this is a correct choice or not. But when people have to choose between access to affordable energy and solving the climate crisis sometime, you know, decades into the future, 
they're going to choose access to affordable energy like every day of the week. And, you know, governments around the world make that same choice, too. And so, again, I, I just think we need to be realistic about that. And we need to talk about the fact that, OK, the world is not transitioning off of oil and gas anytime soon. Let's make sure it's produced here in America under the highest standards possible. So where is the disconnect? Because <laughs> it just seems so logical to the four of us, right? Like we were just talking uh, on another podcast and people are probably sick of me saying it, but you know, like we think about energy, transitional energies and the energy transition and natural gas has, I think a really important role to play. It's a much lower carbon option than coal, but yet because we can't get infrastructure built, coal is on the rise again. It's kind of crazy to think coal usage is going up yeah. for the first time in 15 years. And it just seems like such a logical argument. Where is the disconnect? I wish I could answer that question, and I, and I don't think it can. I mean, I think, um, I'll be honest, I think there are a lot of um, environmental groups on the left who, you know, this is a business for them, frankly. Like, they make so much money off of, you know, scare tactics and rhetoric um, and are more interested in sort of the, the sound bites, you know, over demonizing fossil fuels um, than they are actually buckling down and solving a problem. And, you know, um, you know, so that to me is, you know, a huge part of the problem. And, um, you know, I think I think people, you know, you know, so, so that to me is, is part of the political problem. And then part of the sort of public problem is, you know, people don't think about this every day. You know, they just they just want affordable, you know, gas to put in their cars and they want to be able to afford their heating bills at the end of the month. And, you know, they don't they don't think deeply about where it comes from and where it should come from and the connection to climate and, you know, how all of this is interconnected. And, and, you know, that's okay. You know, not everybody needs to, but, but, but policymakers should for sure. Um, policymakers should think about that and should try to understand it. And, you know, that's, that's what we try to do up here. That's interesting. You mentioned that that issue is a business for, for some of those environmental groups on the left. Well, Kat and I make a business working in the industry on the environmental side as well, trying to make sure that, the oil and gas that we do produce here is the cleanest in the world and is the most environmentally friendly in the world. So I think we can talk to some degree about how, you know, we're also providing jobs and we're providing good economic benefit while doing all of these things to help make sure that while we're still using oil and gas here in the country, that we are doing it as responsibly as possible too. So I think there's not very much conversation going on about how much we actually do to ensure how clean our production is. Um, I, I know we talk about that and we're starting to talk a lot more about how, you know, the U S oil and gas molecule is the cleanest in the world. I think we need to do a better job of showing that though, too. I want, I want to see what the emissions profile of oil and gas produced from OPEC looks like. I mean, there must be a study out there somewhere that I can look at and, and point to it and say, you know, the the emissions, the venting and the flaring and just overall, it's it's got to be so much worse. But I don't know how we're going to get that information, but it's got to be out there somewhere. You know, it, that raises a good point because the U.S. U.S. production is also the most transparent in the world, as you know, because we, you know, have very stringent reporting requirements to the EPA 
you know, for everything from, you know, a spill to, you know, admissions. And, you know, so we're by far the most transparent and, and you know, it's, you know, there's room for improvement there in, in terms of, you know, the, you know, how, how all of these, you know, you know, how, how this is reported, but, um, but no other country in the world requires that level of transparency as we do. And, you know, Kat, I think it, it'll, you know, you know, one thing that we know is is here and coming is more and more satellites that um, you know show you know specifically methane emissions around the globe. You know what we already see is you know enormous plumes coming out of Russia, right? I mean, just you know dwarfing anything that we see here, um, and yet you know. Russia is, you know, piping its natural gas to, you know, Europe and, you know, Russia is like literally under, you know, has, you know, developed a propaganda campaign against U.S. fracked gas, you know, while they are, you know, emitting tons of, of uh, methane into the atmosphere. So, um, you know, I think transparency, you know, is, you know, something that will continue to, to bring that to light, uh, you know, but, but we do need to, you know, do more to continue to, to spread that message. So, so, Anne, I guess the question I want to ask you then is next is behind closed doors, how do the member companies of AXPC view some of these questions on, you know, climate policy and emissions reductions? And because, I mean, it's amazing that American oil and gas operators can produce and produce at a profit with the regulatory environment they have to deal with. And it's only getting harsher, right? They have the the EPA just released the new methane um, rules. And I'm just curious, I mean, most of your member companies, I would bet almost all of them have climate impact statements, the sustainability plans, they're working on net zero, you know, targets. And I'm curious behind closed doors, do they do they embrace the, the ESG movement or do they kind of roll their eyes and say, this is just another nuisance we have to deal with? So I will say I, I do feel like that issue is is really evolving. And I think you see more and more companies looking at ESG issues as a differentiator, frankly, um, and and really, you know, understanding, you know, the and, and really looking to invest in in that differentiation. Um so, um, you know, and, and we know that, you know, in, investors are asking for a lot of things. They're asking for, you know, free cash flow. They're asking for good returns, but they're also asking to make sure that, you know, the companies that they're investing in are environmentally responsible and protective. Um, and then, you know, you see even on, you know, if you go a little further, you see, you know, the responsibly sourced gas movement where, you know, there's. There's, um, you know, potentially a developing market where there's a premium for, um, you know, going, you know, even further above and beyond and documenting, you know, what what folks are doing um, to to reduce their emissions. So um, I'll say, you know, I, you know, I think that um, the different companies are at different stages in their ESG journey. Um uh, so from that perspective, you know, I, I think, you know, to a company, everyone sort of, you know, has been at least in, in from my members have, you know, welcomed the ability to, um, 
you know, to transparently compare data from company to company. And, you know, I think they really, you know, challenge themselves to look at what their peer companies are doing and, you know, constantly improve. You know, I think AXPC is a really neat organization because, you know, we host forums among our member companies where they can share best practices and, you know, their use of emerging technologies and what's working and what's not. And so, you know, I, what I see is, is constant striving for, 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 you know, improvement um, among member companies. Um, and then, you know, I think a lot of them take that and they tell that story uh, through their ESG reports to investors. Yeah, so it's safe to say that it's a genuine effort. It's not greenwashing. A hundred percent. So what are some of the biggest challenges? Like what are the top two items that your organization is really focusing in on right now? What are the two hot button topics? Oh, goodness, there are so many. Um, so we have been really, really involved um, over the last several months, certainly in the bill that's making its way through Congress, you know, that is referred to commonly as the reconciliation bill. Um, this is the um, Democrats, um, you know, sort of uh, partisan bill, um, and I say partisan because they're they're using reconciliation, which is a partisan process, uh, to pass you know to pass these provisions that you know didn't have the bipartisan support that you know the policies that went into the um, to the bipartisan infrastructure bill. So um, we have been, and there are a number of policies within this reconciliation bill that are harmful for U.S. oil and gas producers. There are some, um, some really egregious and stringent new regulations on federal land production um, that are really meant to depress uh, production on federal land that have been a huge concern. And then there's also a provision um, called a methane tax um, which, you know, uh, Andrew, you referenced earlier, the EPA is going through a process um, by which um, they're putting out new regulations on methane for new and existing sources. So the, so the, so the, so the new methane regulations will sort of um, put forward new standards for both new and existing sources of production um, that, you know, every, every producer will have to abide by. And it's going to be a very expensive proposal uh, to comply with. The EPA itself um, estimates it's about $13 billion for industry to implement um, the regulations under the new Quad O A um, and B uh, regulations. Um, and so then on top of that, Congress is looking at this methane tax, which will um, tax the emissions um, from oil and gas production pipelines and LNG facilities. Um, and so, you know, again, we are, our, our philosophy is, you know, as we talked about, the world needs more and more energy. And so we, we don't oppose policies that incentivize renewables. Um, you know, they, they don't, you know, they, they, they do create an unlevel playing field, frankly, for our products, you know, but we recognize that, you know, the world is moving to a lower carbon future. And, you know, if, if that's what the federal government wants to spend money on, that's fine. Um, uh, but we would strongly oppose policies that are anti-oil and gas, especially anti-American oil and gas. And so we feel very strongly that this methane tax is really punitive on American producers. It makes us less competitive globally um, and is, you know, just going to be this really costly 
costly, burdensome requirement on top of the regulations that will also be coming in the next couple of years. So those are the two policy areas we've been really focused on within just this one reconciliation bill. So what, um, what kind of carbon pricing are they talking about for this tax? And are they just pulling it out of thin air? Um, there is a formula um, uh, that, um, that goes up to $1,500 a ton of emissions, but it's based on your intensity. Um, and it, it goes up over, to over. I think there's a three-year period. It starts at 900, then goes to 1,200, then goes to 1,500. Um, but you know the way the formula works, um, it's 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 quite problematic. Um, you know, we can send you there's there's some information on it on our website if you want to go to our website to take a look um, at some of our material on it. Um, but it's also specific to methane, and so it's not like an economy wide carbon tax. It's just um, a tax on methane emissions, but it captures. Um, it's based on reported subpart W um, hmm. uh, emissions. And it's, it's, it's quite problematic in terms of how the formula works. And it pulls in a lot of companies that um, I think it doesn't necessarily, you know, that, that the proponents, you know, it's much more expansive than the proponents would say it is. It's been a crazy 20 months since COVID came into the picture for American production. Do you think... COVID-related issues or policy-related issues pose a greater threat to the industry in the next five years? That's a great question. And I actually had that exact question uh, was came up in a conversation I had with one of my CEOs today. And um, I think it, I think, I think you could go either way on that question. I mean, there's, um, you know, I think that, you know, some some people are, are more concerned about um, you know where COVID is going and you know extended demand destruction um, from that. Um, I think others are more concerned about public policies coming out of Washington and the threat you know to their companies posed from that. So I you know I think you know, I think I think the overall. The problem is, you know, we can't pick, right? We're getting all of the above. We're getting the uncertainty with regard to COVID and the, you know, you know, demand destruction without, you know, knowing how bad that's going to be. You know, we're getting the additional costly regulations out of Washington. You know, we're potentially getting, you know, these, you know, legislative policies um, that are really detrimental to our industry as well. So, um, so, you know, I think, you know, any of these taken alone is, you know, a real problem for our industry, you know, but put together, you know, it's, it's a lot for, for, for the, for the industry to deal with all at once. And what kinds of outreach and education are you guys doing over at AXPC right now? And, and how can people that are involved in Energy Strong get involved with you guys and, and help out with any of that mission? Yeah. So first of all, I, I would say, you know, um, check out our website. Uh, you know, we try to post a lot of our, you know, issue papers, um, blog posts, um, press releases, um, all of those things on our website. We also um, recently added a sign up form so you can go and, you know, sign up for a list um, where, you know, we'll periodically be sending out updates. So I encourage you to do that. 
Um, and we also have a grassroots pro, uh, platform that we just kicked off earlier this year uh, to help um, people around the country write their members of Congress with regard to the reconciliation bill. So if you text the word energy to the number 73075, um, again, that's 73075, you just text the word energy, you'll get a pop-up to be able to write your representatives. And that way you're also in our platform. And so we can sort of send additional information and updates moving forward. So that's two different ways that you can sort of, you know, opt in to our information updates and potential um, action alerts um, in the future. So we'd love, you know, to get, you know, folks involved through any of those channels. Um, and then Patrick, to, you know, answer your question about, you know, what do we do? You know, we believe very strongly that, you know, energy should not be a partisan issue. Energy is something that touches the lives of every single American, um, you know, no matter if you're a Republican or a Democrat. So obviously, you know, we have a lot more friends and allies that come from energy producing areas of the country. Um, but we'll talk to anybody about, you know, the importance of American made energy. And so we've really tried to build some relationships on both sides of the aisle over the last couple of years um, to ensure that, you know, people do understand the importance of American made energy. Um, and, you know, we also um, work a lot with outside groups as well, because, you know, admittedly, you know, oil and gas is not always, you know, our, our best messenger, <laughs> right? You know, um, sometimes, you know, you know, when we when we can find other organizations that, you know, share um, share our, our principles and our concerns, you know, we you know, we work with them, you know, to partner on a lot of the issues that are of mutual importance to us. So, um, you know, that's 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 a, an effort that we engage in as well. Uh, but we'll have a conversation with, you know, you know, any any member of Congress from any part of the political spectrum um, about it. And so we and so we really try to make sure at least that we're we're, we're known, we're a resource, and that people, you know, know where to go to get, you know, good information about the importance of American-made oil and gas. Well, I'm, I'm going to sign up for the, for the text messaging right away, and we will awesome. put some of that content onto the podcast so that all of our listeners can access it as well. Wonderful. Thanks, Kat. So we've been closing it out with a crystal ball segment. Oh, boy. And, uh, so I'm going to ask you to break out the crystal ball and make your prediction for 2022 and beyond where, you know, COVID, energy, policy, climate change. There's a lot going on in the industry. What do you think will be some of the emerging trends in 22? Emerging trends. I mean, it's clear that COVID is going to be with us for a long time in some form or fashion. Um, you know, my hope is that, you know, we learn to live with it in a safe and sane manner um, because it's, it's not going away. Um, you know, but I think it's important for all of our, you know, all of our, our mental, you know, health that, you know, we, we, you know, learn to kind of live our lives with COVID. Um, so, you know, hopefully your listeners are, you know, vaccinated and getting boosters. Um, you know, I'll also say, you know, in terms of energy policy, um, you know, putting, you know, my Washington hat on right now, um, you know, you know, we're going to be going into um, a hotly contested midterm election in 2022. And right now, the midterms are really favoring Republicans. So I think folks are most folks are expecting that um, after November of 2022, there probably won't be unified Democrat control of Congress anymore. That's just sort of the 
working assumption right now in Washington. There's obviously a lot of time between now and then, um, but but that's you know where it looks like things are going right now. So I think what you're going to see is less activity on the legislative side, on the congressional side, in terms of like passing bills. But I think you're going to see a lot more activity on the regulatory side. So I think you're going to see EPA and DOI and the White House um, continue to push forward with um, you know a lot of these climate policies uh, that you know that they that they have prioritized but do so through the the regulatory and executive action channels versus the hill channels so um, it'll continue to be you know a very active topic here I think for the next four years but you may sort of see a shift in where some of that action is happening no I think that's I think that's that's great and uh, we appreciate the time today that you spent with us to just tell us a little bit about AXPC and, and what you guys are doing on the policy front in Washington. It's super fascinating. Politics fascinate me, probably fascinate most people to some degree. And, uh, you know, the work you guys are doing for the industry, we appreciate it and, and appreciate your time. Well, thanks. I appreciate what y'all are doing too. And, you know, let's stay in touch because I think y'all are, are doing great work as well. So thanks for that. Thanks, Anne. Thanks so much. Well, you have once again reached the end of the Energy Strong podcast. Thank you so much for sticking it out with us. We're having a great time recording this show, and we'd really like to get some feedback from you guys. So please leave a rating and a review wherever you listen, whether that's on Spotify, Pandora, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or on YouTube now. Leave some comments on the shows there. It'll really help us out, get a better feel for what you guys like that we're talking about and ways that we could improve. As always, we provide some information in the show notes here, how you can get in touch with AXPC and learn more about what they're doing and how you can get involved with them. I want to give another shout out to SPL. We couldn't put the show together without you guys. And to Andrew Parker and Kat Galloway, thank you so much for hosting this show with me. I hope you all learn something as we go through these shows and that you're sharing it with friends and colleagues and anyone else that you think might be interested. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time.